Welcome to Clarity, hosted by me, Larry McCannum. Hi, I'm Larry. You might remember me from all the other episodes of this podcast, but maybe not. If there's one thing in life I've learned, it's don't expect too much. I hope you all had a productive week and were able to take a moment to find some personal peace. That's really important. First up, I want to present a counterposition to the Me Too movement. I was reading an article posted on The Guardian about Catherine Deneuve. Larry, that's Deneuve. She's French. I've been living in Los Angeles too long. My apologies. Anyways, Catherine Deneuve along with about a hundred female French writers, performers, and academics, wrote an open letter criticizing all the denunciations that came from the Me Too movement following the Weinstein allegations. Among other things, they claim it's a witch hunt that's threatening sexual freedom as a new form of Puritanism. In her opinion, men should be free to hit on women. One excerpt from the letter says, Rape is a crime, but trying to seduce someone, even persistently or cack-handedly, is not. Nor is men being gentlemanly a macho attack. Another portion says, Men have been punished summarily, forced out of their jobs, when all they did was touch someone's knee or try to steal a kiss. Deneuve specifically addresses the Me Too movement by saying, I don't think it is the right method to change things. It is excessive. After calling out your pig, which is the French version of call out your aggressor. What are we gonna have? Call out your whore? Instead of helping women, this frenzy to send these pigs to the abattoir. That's a battoir. The, the abattoir. What's a abattoir? A slaughterhouse. It's been adopted into English. Look, Will, this is gonna get old real quick. Larry, you asked to be held accountable. Not by you. Does the lion ask the mouse for permission to kill a gazelle? I'm really confused by that metaphor. I think you're letting your pride get in the way. What are you, touched in the head? Wait a second. I see what you did there. Here's some French for you. Touché. How was that pronunciation? Much better. I, I, I swear, to, do I need to do a piece on rhetorical? Stop getting me distracted. This frenzy to send these pigs to the battoir actually helps the enemies of sexual liberty, religious extremists, and the worst sort of reactionaries. As women, we do not recognize ourselves in this feminism, which beyond denouncing the abuse of power, takes on a hatred of men and of sexuality. I feel like I should have read that in a French accent while smoking a cigarette, but I also want to take this position seriously. I don't think I need to present every single counterpoint. That's really not the focus of this podcast. But I do think it's important to show that within the female movement, there is a spectrum of belief. Not everyone is going to see eye to eye on every issue. And I think it's important to listen and try to understand why. One of the reasons I brought up the origin of the Me Too movement at the end of the last episode, and am continuing the discussion this episode, is because I want to look into the case of Margaret Atwood. She's the author of The Handmaid's Tale, and she's been accused of being a bad feminist. To give some context, the following is an excerpt from an article in The Globe and the Mail by Marsha Liederman. 
Mr. Galloway, a best-selling novelist, was fired from his job as the chair of University of British Columbia's creative writing program in 2016 after a high-profile suspension the previous year. The University of British Columbia, or UBC for short, said the allegations against him were serious but gave little of the detail, provoking much speculation as details were kept under wraps while an independent investigation was underway. It has since emerged that a former student accused Mr. Galloway of sexual assault. He has said he had an affair with a student. She has said her complaint was not about a consensual relationship. Others, deemed ancillary complainants in the case, alleged inappropriate behavior. If you're Canadian, you throw a you in there. Including sexual harassment and bullying. So you're probably asking, how did Margaret Atwood get involved in this? Well, she signed a letter along with about 60 other individuals complaining that the University of British Columbia did not follow due process and was not providing all the information on the case. They were just saying, this is how it is, fall in line. Here were some comments directly from Margaret Atwood. The public, including me, was left with the impression that this man was a violent serial rapist and everyone was free to attack him publicly since under the agreement he had signed, he couldn't say anything to defend himself. A fair-minded person would now withhold judgment as to guilt until the report are available for us to see. The author of this piece then clarifies Margaret Atwood's position by saying, her opinion piece was meant to highlight the choice we now face. Fix the system, bypass it, or burn the system down and replace it with, presumably, another system. After facing a backlash, Atwood then responded at much greater length. It seems that I am a bad feminist. I can add that to the other things I've been accused of since 1972, such as climbing to fame up a pyramid of decapitated men's heads, of being a dominatrix bent on the subjugation of men, and of being an awful person who can annihilate, with her magic white witch powers, anyone critical of her at Toronto dinner tables. I'm so scary, and now it seems I am conducting a war on women like the misogynistic, rape-enabling bad feminist that I am. What would a good feminist look like in the eyes of my accusers? My fundamental position is that women are human beings with the full range of saintly and demonic behaviors this entails, including criminal ones. They're not angels incapable of wrongdoing. If they were, we wouldn't need a legal system. Nor do I believe that women are children incapable of agency or of making moral decisions. If they were, we're back to the 19th century and women should not own property, have credit cards, have access to higher education, control their own reproduction or vote. There are powerful groups in North America pushing this agenda, but they are not usually considered feminists. Furthermore, I believe that in order to have civil and human rights for women, there have to be civil and human rights, period, including the right to fundamental justice. Justice for women to have the vote, there has to be a vote. Do good feminists believe that only women should have such rights? Surely not. That would be to flip the coin on the old state of affairs in which only men had such rights. On which trial comparisons, my good feminist accusers take exception to this comparison. They think I was comparing them to the teenage Salem witch finders and calling them hysterical little girls. I was alluding instead to the structure in place at the trials themselves. All these quotes are from articles on the Globe and the Mail. That's M-A-I-L, not M-A-L-E. Just in case you were wondering. 
on lack of evidence. Such things are always done in the name of ushering in a better world. Sometimes they do usher one in, for a time anyway. Sometimes they were used as an excuse for new forms of oppression. As for vigilante justice, condemnation without a trial. It begins as a response to a lack of justice. Either the system is corrupt, as in pre-revolutionary France, or there isn't one, as in the Wild West. So people take things into their own hands. But understandable and temporary vigilante justice can morph into a culturally solidified lynch mob habit in which the available mode of justice is thrown out the window and extra-legal power structures are put into place and maintained. The Cosa Nostra, for instance, begin as a resistance to political tyranny. That's the Italian mafia in layman's terms. Atwood continues, If the legal system is bypassed because it is seen as ineffectual, what will take its place? Who will be the new power brokers? It won't be the bad feminists like me. We are acceptable neither to the right nor to the left. In times of extremes, extremists win. Their ideology becomes a religion. Anyone who doesn't puppet their views is seen as an apostate, a heretic, or a traitor. And moderates in the middle are annihilated. Fiction writers are particularly suspect because they write about human beings. And people are morally ambiguous. The aim of ideology is to eliminate ambiguity. I have to agree with that sentiment. Personally, I don't understand why we need things to be black or white. Do we truly want to live in a world where there's only two options for everything? That doesn't seem to be how nature works. I don't think the universe cares if there's a heads or a tails on the coin. In the cosmic sense, flipping it does not matter. Here are some counterpoints to Margaret Atwood's statement via tweets. Erica Thorkelson at E-T-H-O-R-K-E-L wrote, if at Margaret Atwood would like to stop warring amongst women, she should stop declaring war against younger, less powerful women and start listening. Sam Baltic, at Baltic SA, I think this account might have been deactivated, wrote, In today's dystopian news, one of the most important feminist voices of our time shits on less powerful women to uphold the power of her powerful male friend. In another, Alicia Elliott, at Words and Guitar, writes, at Margaret Atwood, unsubstantiated does not mean innocent. It means there was not enough evidence to convict. Main complainant's lawyer said her accusations were not about a consensual affair. And by saying Galloway was innocent, you implied she was a liar. I mentioned earlier that letter that was posted with signatories saying that they wanted more oversight on this case. It was posted on a website called UBC Accountable in the fall of 2016. This information is from another The Globe and Mail article. The initial letter had more than 60 signatures. And this article says that after an outcry from some complainants, in this case and many others, signatories Margaret Atwood, Joseph Boyden, and Susan Swan clarified that they were calling for fair treatment for all involved in this case, including the complainants. They wanted to see complete oversight, not oversight only for their colleague Stephen Galloway, but for everyone involved. Later on, more than 10 writers removed their names from this letter, including acclaimed Canadian novelists Madeleine Thien, Rawi Haig, Hage, I, I apologize about mispronunciations, and Lisa Moore. The removal of the names follows a difficult year during which Canadian writers faced off in pitched battles over social media and beyond. Poet Mitchell Perry wrote, 
This is something I've been wrestling with for the past year, daily. During which time, I went from wanting to remove my name, to wanting to keep it on the letter, to wanting to remove it. So exhaustion is one reason that Mitchell gives for taking his name off of this list. Mitchell continues by saying, The past year has seen a violent rending of a community that matters to me. Pitching good, caring people against each other and watching that happen was breaking my heart. Over the past year, the letter that I had signed had turned into something entirely different. He identified that the turning point for him in determining whether he kept his name on the list or not was a conversation he had with another writer, Alicia Elliott. Alicia Elliott. She told him that she knew of young writers who were terrified of coming forward to speak up about allegations of abuse because of the letter he had signed. The UBC accountable spokesperson, Carmen Ayer, also an award-winning author, says that the site will not come down because that would be almost a form of censorship. Her name is still on the letter, along with more than 80 other people, including Miss Atwood, Mr. Boyden, Michael Ondaatje, and Jane Urquhart. Miss Ayer expands upon her position by saying, As for those of us who have chosen to keep our names on, I get the sense that we feel stronger than ever about the content of the letter, which for us was always about due process and never about questioning the claims. To give another perspective, Irene O'Grizek wrote on her site on January 13th, www.ireneogrizek.com. That's O-G-R-I-Z-E-K. The problem is that Galloway's ex-lover, MC for Maine Complainant, did not go directly to university administrators whose job it is to help students in crisis. Instead, it appears she wrote a different letter to other faculty members in the creative writing program, a letter that suggested those faculty members consult other students to collect evidence of a claim. The upshot is that two other students, both of whom ended up being complainants themselves, did their own detective work. One distributed a secret memo to other students asking them to come forward if they had any complaints about Galloway. The other, who was also an employee of the university, used a position to dig into his use of department finances. Both students did this clandestine evidence gathering under the direction of one of Galloway's colleagues. That colleague was the same one who insisted that he be taken to a psych ward after he received an email about the accusations against him. He was in the U.S. at the time, giving a talk at another university. Sierra Sky Gemma, she used a position at UBC to investigate Galloway's use of financial resources. Apparently, this was not done with the university's approval. As the letters signed by Atwood and Boyden made clear, no criminal charges were ever laid against Galloway. Although there were complaints about bullying and favoritism, any professor heading a creative writing program is vulnerable to the same. For the students, the headiness of belonging to a self-perceived group of up-and-coming writers is bound to be matched by high levels of exquisite sensitivity. However, sensitivity isn't the only problem with this department. There's another that can be summed up with that annoying buzzword from the 90s. Everyone was violating boundaries. She then provides a useful recap. Galloway had an affair with a student while he was married. He later married his second wife, who was also a graduate of the creative writing program. When his ex-lover sent her letter to his colleagues, they did not go to the administration. Instead, they met at a private home and strategized with two students. 
The goal of the strategy was to oust Galloway. They were motivated by the words of the MC, main complainant, who according to the person who contacted me, is unreliable. The first of those students is in a relationship with another creative writing professor at UBC. After Judge Mary Ellen Boyd questioned her, Boyd decided that her credibility and eagerness to insert herself into the investigation were problematic. The second student was an employee of the university. She used her position to investigate financial matters without getting the university's permission. The main complainant was also married when she had her affair with Galloway. Years earlier, MC had also been active in a campaign to fire another professor at another university. The colleague who supervised the evidence gathering also called the police and insisted Galloway be taken to the local psych ward because he was suicidal. Galloway denies this. The author of this article concludes it by saying, I'm tired of being expected to be sympathetic to women like MC. It doesn't sound as if she benefited from her relationship with Galloway, but if she did, I think we have the right to hear about that too and to demand that her degree, or at least some credits, be revoked. As a woman in her 40s, the one who also chose to cheat on a spouse, MC is not a victim. Her life experiences should have prepared her for the consequences of an extramarital relationship with a man in Galloway's position. That that did not happen is her tragedy, not ours. In this case with Stephen Galloway, there's a lot of strange things happening in the story. And I think that alone warrants greater exploration. We need to be able to discuss these nuanced details. What possible motives are there? Are all the people involved behaving appropriately? Does participation in past allegations against another professor matter in this? Again, I'm not claiming to have all the answers, but I think factoring in all these details is important. We can't have a complete discussion unless we hear out all the sides. And to tie back into my conversation about NDAs, when you're forcing an individual to gag themselves, that makes it extremely difficult, especially when there's no criminal charges. We just don't see a, a resolution. We only hear one side of the story, and we're supposed to make a judgment off of that. My personal interpretation is that Margaret Atwood was deeply hurt. She felt like she was thrown under the bus. She was trying to be an ally towards a colleague, possibly a friend, and instead seemed to undo all of the social good she felt she built up over the years. And I think her points about how she's been criticized by the right, the left, and the center is a pretty good indication that we're all having trouble addressing and communicating in these situations. But right now, let's take some calls. Welcome to Clarity. Please introduce yourself and tell us where you're from. Hi. You can call me Lionel. Lionel D. From uh, Wisconsin. How are you today, Larry? I I'm I'm doing all right. Uh, good to meet you, Lionel. Do you have a question? I'm calling because I'm curious. How you choose your subjects. Well, sometimes it's based on the topic at hand. Or other times I just reach out to someone I know. Do you 
research the patterns of their lives before approaching them. I'm a little disconcerted by that question. You're coming off a little bit like a stalker. I, I try to make women extremely comfortable in this podcast. And if I talk about how I'm uh, investigating the daily routine, that might come across... I'm not interested in women, Larry. I'm just one of the guys. Okay, okay. My mistake. I may have been a little accusatory. You're kind of giving me a strange vibe. I, I can't put my finger on it, but that emotionless monotone is... A little off-putting. That kind of accusation makes me angry. I don't think it's fair. Oh, all right. Uh, maybe we got off on the wrong foot. My apologies. Tell me about yourself. I can hear the rain hitting my window pane and the patter of the drops reminds me of being a child out in the woods operating on animals. Some that I uh, found dead. Some that belonged to my neighbors. Sure. Uh, every kid goes through that phase, right? Only a few graduate to greater prey. I know, right? Once you get tired of squirrels and domestic pets, you might go hunt a deer. Taxidermy is a normal hobby. Yeah, yeah, of course. That sounds like a great way to, uh, channel these desires. Oh, continue. To listen, Larry, and uh, hopefully I'll be watching soon. Are you okay, Larry? It, yeah, I'm okay. Hey, hey Will, mm -hmm. do you think he was talking about watching me on, say, something like HBO? Like how Two Dope Queens got their own show? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, that's it. How about we go to the interview? Welcome to the show. Can you please introduce yourself? Hi, Larry. Uh, as you know, I'm Vanessa. I'm Will's wife. That sounds a little bit possessive. Are you his property? Oh. I've stumped you. <laughs> I, I apologize. I'm just trying to encourage different ways of seeing these things. I was just at an event where somebody spoke and he had to introduce his wife, but he was really careful in how he worded it. I can't remember. It was something like, oh, and I'd like to introduce Carol. It wasn't my spouse. It was trying to not be possessive. I can't remember. I guess what gave me pause is you said, 
I'm Will's wife. Instead of saying, Will is my husband, you didn't flip around the possessiveness. Well, I think people on this show know who Will is. You're a fantastic producer. So I was trying to introduce myself as it related to somebody they already knew. Fair enough. But I, I do am having trouble coming up with a way to describe that relationship without being possessive one way or the other. It'd be an interesting thing to look up. I think that there are ways... I mean, you could say, I'm married to Will. Mm. That sounds a little bit awkward, but that's a step in the right direction. Mm. I guess I didn't really see a problem with, I'm Will's wife. There might not be a problem. I'm not implying that there is. It's just something that popped into my head. I think it's a way of, like I said before, introducing who you are as it relates to somebody else. I don't think it implies ownership or possessiveness. I agree, but you do see how it could be possessive as well, right? Sure. And I think these are things that we should be conscious of. Uh, That said, I have heard an anecdote where Will accused you of not being a feminist. Can you elaborate on how that made you feel? Well, initially I was pretty upset. (laughs) Understandably. But I think after listening to the past few episodes of Clarity... I'm coming to realize that there are so many different definitions of feminism. And uh, frankly, I didn't realize that. And it sounds like there are different viewpoints that there are correct ways of being and defining it. And then there are ways that could maybe be seen as detrimental. And I wasn't aware of all of those. I thought that by saying that I wasn't a feminist, Will was saying that it was almost like I was undermining the movement saying that I thought women were not equal, that we weren't as deserving as men, which is not at all how I feel, so I was pretty upset. Uh, Again, understandably, and Will can be a real jerk, so I'm not going to write it off as some misunderstanding. I think you're giving him a little too much credit. You both know I'm right here, right? Well, I think where I have a question for you, actually, Larry, is to be a feminist, you have to be an activist as well. Do you have to be actively fighting for equality, marching, making phone calls to representatives? Like, how active do you have to be to be able to call yourself a feminist? If you even want to break it down to the bare bones, is being a feminist already being an activist? If you're trying to combat a system that we recognize oppresses specific genders and treats them with inequality, are you automatically an activist by identifying yourself with that movement. Hmm. I don't know that I can answer that. I'm just curious about your personal thoughts. Don't feel like you're on trial. This is just what your your heart or your head is telling you. Well, that's what I, I want to understand. Because I always saw myself as a feminist, but I'm not an activist. What's preventing you from being an activist? Hmm. I don't know. I guess it would be... You haven't attended any of the women's marches, right? No. Is there a reason you haven't? I think if I had, like, a group of friends who were going, I would absolutely want to. And there have been times, like, the very first one in 2017, I think, was the first big one. I was really sick, so I was watching, you know, almost with FOMO, fear of missing out, Larry. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) As a lot of friends and people that I knew were out there marching posting some of the very inspiring remarks that they were hearing. And I did feel like I was missing out. I was just really sick. I was really ill. Um, so I couldn't be there. That's totally understandable. But how about this year? 
I think I need to be tapped into more sources of information. I'm not active on social media. I don't have Facebook. I don't have Twitter. I, I've kind of closed myself off to a lot of the social media avenues because I feel like in some ways they're very detrimental. But in other ways, it helps to inform you when things are happening, right? So something like the Women's March, I didn't even know it was happening until like the day before when a colleague of mine said that she was going to be going with her family. So I think if I had known, I would have been able to prepare and be there. It's the downside to not being connected. <laughs> That's true. I totally understand your hesitancy to embrace social media. It provides interesting viewpoints and gives you a lot of information, but I've personally found that information can be very limited. You're talking in an echo chamber. You're talking only to people who already agree with you. And I think that can limit how you view things. I think the presidential election was a great example where if you looked at social media, Hillary Clinton was going to win hands down. There was no chance she would lose. Right. And I, I mean, I didn't even have social media around the election outside of speaking to people face to face about what their actual political beliefs were. I didn't get that constant news feed of people just on their soapbox. Do you think that's beneficial or do you think you're missing out? I don't think I'm missing out. Well, like I said, in some ways, in terms of information of what's going on, in terms of like-minded connections, sharing great opportunities and resources that I could take advantage of, like participating in some of those activist marches or stands, I'm missing out in that respect. I don't really like the... T They're a real pain in the ass. <laughs> this is incessant. I think she wants her viewpoint heard. Maybe another episode. <laughs> I feel like my life is richer not constantly being exposed to everybody's opinions. And it doesn't even feel real what people post on social media. It's the best versions of themselves in some ways. And in other ways, people use it to really just complain. <laughs> I found that I was becoming a really negative person when I was spending a lot of time on Facebook especially. I think that's fair. And I've noticed with Will, he seems very caught up in these forum arguments, and it affects his mood. He seems to get deeply invested, and then gets frustrated when some schlemiel on the other side can't construct a logical argument. Well, I think Will constantly seeks to connect with people, and it doesn't even have to be in person, in real life, which is my preference. I'd rather have a conversation with somebody face-to-face, -face, be able to read, you know, their expressions, be able to read their body language. Can you please include me in this conversation? For me, it's a challenge engaging with somebody online. I don't really know who they are. I don't know where they live. I don't know their age. I don't know their, any of their history. So I don't know who they are. So when I'm approaching them in a conversation, I feel like I don't have all of the information. But Will, he almost sees it as not a challenge, but he, he seeks to engage with people who have a different viewpoint and try to understand where they're coming from. But it's difficult to engage in that kind of conversation on an online forum. I think people shut down when they feel even slightly criticized. And I think that's really frustrating for Will because he's really just trying to get a conversation going a lot like you, Larry. I don't know if I can agree with that last part. I think you're giving him a little too much credit. I don't, think, so. I don't think he provides as much nuance and care to his arguments. Well, he doesn't have as many years of experience as you do. It's, it's true. Life is the greatest teacher. I, 
I do also think that when you're interacting solely through the internet, there's almost the tendency to project yourself upon the other person. Mm. You kind of imagine that you're talking to another you. And I think that's a dangerous mentality. You can't assume the other person is truly a peer. You know nothing about them. Their life could be totally different. They could be facing all kinds of things that you just have no context of. Right. So I don't understand why Will does it at all. I, I don't understand much of what he does at all. You can just <laughs> ask me. I'm right here. I feel like as a society, we're very apathetic. And I know that I, I tend to often feel that something is wrong, you know, and that somebody should do something about it. But there's something always holding me back from taking that final step. And I applaud people who get fed up with it. And it's not just with the feminist movement, but it's with everything, with the Black Lives Matters movement, with all of the mass shootings that have been happening in the U.S. I applaud all of those young students who've stood up for themselves, their friends, for all Americans, really, and said, like, you know, enough is enough. They're forming their own stance, their own movement, and they're not waiting around for the adults to get it together and actually do something. And so that's really inspiring to me. That makes me feel like, why am I just sitting here on my couch watching other people act? It makes me think back to earlier when you said, what is keeping me from being an activist? <laughs> and I think some of it is just not knowing what steps you're supposed to take and also not trusting that the steps that they tell you to take are effective. People will always say, you know, contact your representative, let them know how you feel. But I don't really trust that that works. I could be completely wrong. I've never really tried. It's tough. And I do think even, even thinking of a protest... I don't want to discourage anyone, and I think you should always voice your opinion, especially if it's an issue important to you. But I'm not convinced that even a huge rally, say you get a million people, obviously it raises the profile of the moment, but I'm not convinced that it'll influence change as much as, say, financial motivation. Well, I think it's daunting when you're thinking of trying to change a whole country, <laughs> you know, laws that rule millions and millions and millions of people. For me, it feels more possible to affect change in a smaller community, right? So your neighborhood, your local community, your workplace. I'm really active in my place of work in terms of making sure that everybody has a voice there. But there it kind of feels like, okay, well, if there's only a few thousand employees and you make a stance for something that you feel isn't right, you can affect change because it's a small enough community. You feel like for the most part, everybody has respect for one another. I know that's not true in every industry and in every workplace, but it feels more possible than when you're trying to completely change the laws in the United States. It is a mammoth task. It's on such a scale, it's almost hard to comprehend. 323 million people is more than I can really grasp. Like, the size of that crowd doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And perhaps we're just not meant to live in societies this densely populated as an animal. I think that's a possibility, too. It's a challenge to really comprehend, like you were saying, fathom what, who those people are. You know, they're very, very different from you. You possibly never visited their state, their hometown. You don't know much about their background. So it's challenging. It doesn't feel like they're part of your same community. Are there any avenues of change you can think of besides activism? Well, I think a lot of it is 
engaging in conversation with other people. And that's why I applaud what, what you're doing with this podcast. I think you're just basically trying to give everybody a platform to have a chance to express their viewpoints, who they are, what they believe, what they're willing to fight for, and why it's important to them. And I think, I know you're you're only on episode five or six. Um, this will so be episode <laughs> six, yes. So you have a lot more people that I know you're planning to provide that platform to. But it's just educating yourself on other people and their backgrounds and what drives them, what motivates them, what's important to them. And I think often we'll find that at the core, people aren't that different. But we'll see. I'll plan to check it back in with you on episode 50, see if that's the same conclusion you've come to. I appreciate that. I appreciate the compliment, too. I think everyone deserves a voice, even Will. Yes, even Will. Especially Will. I would not go that far. Can you stop picking on me? I don't know, Larry. I think you should try engaging a little bit more with Will. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised to hear his viewpoint. I hope so. I'm not overly optimistic. We should ask him if he still believes I'm not a feminist. You're taking that out of context. I think that's a good question. If I was you, I would keep him in hot water over that. (laughs) I think he's overstepping some bounds there. Well, I think the thing that really upset me the most was that he was a man telling me that I wasn't a feminist. I almost felt like he didn't get to make that call. If another female said that, I think I would still be very hurt, but it would cause me to kind of really dig deep and examine. And maybe it's not fair to Will that I automatically shut it down, that because he's a man, he can't possibly express that opinion. Again, I think you're giving him a little too much credit. I think maybe he could have phrased that concept in a better way. Mm -hmm. I don't think challenging you by saying you're not a feminist is a conducive way for conversation to occur. And that's why I'm hosting the podcast and Will isn't. Yeah. Well, it's interesting every time you've interviewed a woman. So you interviewed Miranda, you interviewed Alex, and you asked them to define feminism in their own words. And every time I would listen to the episode with Will, he would say, well, see, does that change your viewpoint on feminism? But I found that my definition was very similar to theirs. So I feel like Will probably should have asked me what my definition was before assuming what it was and just basically assuming that I didn't even agree with these women. Again, we're returning to some personality qualities. He's a jerk and he seems to be a little self-absorbed. Oh, come on. (laughs) I give up. Aren't we all? Uh, Granted, I indulge myself quite a lot. I'm not going to dispute that. And I think we all have a tendencies. I think we all have a tendency to view the world as it relates to us personally. I I think that's an important thing. I I think a lot of us view ourselves as the hero of our story. And I think that creates a problematic dynamic where if you're the hero, there's got to be the antagonist. But if the antagonist views themselves as the hero... Can those two viewpoints truly be compatible? It depends on who you're asking. How do you feel about that? Do you view yourself as the hero of your own story? I mean, I think I view my life and my day-to-day as how it pertains to me because I am i can only be privy to my own thoughts and my own feelings and I have my own concerns and things I have to get done every day. But I don't view... I'm never looking for an antagonist. I think that might be a key way you truly differ from Will. He seems to thrive off of, not necessarily conflict, but an enemy. 
Hmm. I've noticed that he seems to seek out that adversarial relationship and scheme endlessly. And personally, I find that a little troubling. He seems to have a lot of issues with letting go of things. <laughs> I think I'm the opposite, too. <laughs> I tend to always empathize with everybody else and give everyone the benefit of the doubt and try to understand, okay, well, if they were rude to me or there must be some something going on in their lives that is causing them to be be that way. And I always want to try to figure out the root of it. I always have to play devil's advocate almost. Whenever anybody's upset at somebody else, I have to say, well, have you thought about, you know, what's going on in their lives? What's affecting them? What their priorities are? How has that approach treated you throughout life, whether your personal life or your experience in your career? I think it's valuable when I bounce those questions off of other people. I think there's times when people just want to be angry at somebody who's wronged them. When you're trying to be strategic, when you're trying to be smart about how you react to something, it's beneficial to have somebody pointing out the other possibilities. And I think in my life, it makes me a happier person. It means I'm not dwelling on anger. I'm not dwelling on the small stuff. I'm able to just assume that that person was rude. I think it helps me move past it because they had a reason for acting the way that they did. And maybe I don't need to know what it was, but it's not about me. I want to thank Vanessa for stopping by for an interview. I appreciate you taking the time. Please tune in next week. You'll hear part two of her interview. We explore issues like addressing sexual misconduct or harassment in the workplace, the differences between experiencing it when you're fresh out of college and when you're a full-fledged adult. Instead of taking the time to advertise a sponsor, I want to talk to all of you about ownership. We're in this together, and it's time to get serious. We need more listeners. I implore each of you to find someone you think might be interested in the show. Let them know you're serious. Don't take no for an answer. Make an example out of someone if you have to. Don't just tell them to subscribe. Force the hand. I mean, literally guide it to click that button. You remember that scene in Clockwork Orange when the protagonist Alex is forced to watch all those videos in a weird contraption? That may not be far enough. Once we double the listenership, think how much easier it will be to convert a third person. You'll have some help.